Welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm Suzanne Harris, and on our podcast, we talk to the authors about themselves, their books, and their ideas. Every book has two stories, and our listeners always find out that story behind the book. Joining me today is David Esling. He's here to talk about his wonderful book, A Flowing Through, a series of artistic explorations that flow from simple starting points, pass by milestones, and finished with polished achievements. David Esling is well known for his creative approaches to teaching and learning during his 37 years as a primary school teacher in Tasmania. His expertise covered children writing, visual aids, visual arts, practical mathematics, and problem solving. He's the author of several articles for educational journals, and he's also a speaker at several institutions of learning. And David, I want to welcome you to Books on Air. It is my pleasure and honor to have you as my guest today. Thanks for joining me. It's lovely to be here. I'm so interested. I've read Flow Flowing Through, and you and I talked briefly before we started talking for this interview, and our educational philosophies and the ideas that we both have about how this all should work and the creativity that you bring to the classroom is so exciting. Let's start off by giving our listeners a little understanding of what your general philosophy is and how you developed that over the years. Well, I think I had a, a school experience when I was a child that made me want to look for a better way. I was sent to a boarding school in England at the age of seven, and the lessons were very uninspiring. We sat in, at desks in rows, and we had tests every fortnight. And all like, and, and we the <clears throat> excuse me the tests we had determined what row and what desk you were sitting in. I frequently could not accept this form of teaching, so I tended to uh, dream of imaginary classrooms where we could use our hands to paint and make things. I got caned for inattention. Uh, I was left-handed. Oh, dear. As as most creative people were. Oh, dear. And, and of course, I blotted my copybook as I tried to drag my pen across the page and the ink smudged my work. I was caned for being untidy. And the canings were frequent and oh, brutal. David, this is I terrible. Had find, I had to find another way. So all the time as I went through my the rest of my schooling, I dreamt of being a teacher where I could do things in a different way. I had to find that way. And it was very difficult, Suzanne, because when I started teaching in 1967, 
I had a class of 42 children, all at desks, facing a blackboard, and all I had was a stick of chalk. I was dumbfounded. I thought, God, I'm going to have to teach the way I was taught myself. But I had to find another way. So I tried, and I began with creative writing. And then as my career progressed and the classes got smaller, I was able to find other ways through art and mathematics to do practical explorations. And by the time I went to Risenvale, which is a uh, socially disadvantaged school in Hobart in 1993, I built up quite a repertoire of creative explorations across the curriculum. And did, did when you, I went to Risen, yeah, go on. Did you run into any kind of resistance when you wanted to bring this creative approach into the classroom? Was there resistance from administrators or other people who looked at the education system and said, this is not teaching? Yeah, you, you do get that, but you also get some other teachers who are really aware of what you're trying to do, and some of them were even principals of schools, and I soon got a name through creative writing, so I then became a speaker at principal conferences, and I was asked to contribute to a book and so forth. So even though they might have looked at me with some degree of suspicion. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was held with some degree of respect and expertise, I think. Oh, excellent. All right, that's, that's very good news. I wondered. Mm. But still, still today, I would say people think I, I was rather avant-garde. This was not quite the kind of thing that I would do. Uh, well, they were people who wanted to be the instructor most of the time. And if we look upon teachers as instructors, we're likely to have passive children. And I know that doesn't work. <clears throat> I know it doesn't work, particularly at school at Risenvale, for example. If I tried to be an instructor for most of the day, my life would be unbearable. They wouldn't accept it. Their behavior would be intolerable. So I had to find another way. Why, and I, why, I primary, the, why, why primary school? Why did I choose primary school? Um, because that's where I first had these ideas that I wanted to make a difference. I was thinking of my own primary school days. I said, right, I'm going to be a primary school teacher. Now, there were quite a few men in primary schools when I began teaching. There doesn't seem to be so many now. I wonder why. Hmm. I don't know. I wish I had the answer to that question. Now, primary school in Tasmania and Australia is what age group? Good question. Um Five to 12. Oh. Right. Then they go to high school, and that's till about grade 12. And 
then they either leave school or go on to further learning. Now, how did you, let's talk about how you decided to, to share your ideas. You've come up with just, I can't wait for our listeners to hear the kinds of ideas that you've brought to the classroom. It's just, it's magical as far as I'm concerned. And I can see, as I looked at the book, and you've done a wonderful job with the photography. Did you take those pictures yourself, by the way? Yes, I did. I took them with a single reflex lens, color negative film. We did an excellent, excellent job. Thank you. Yeah, it was quite difficult to um, to sit alongside children and work with them and take photos as well, <laughs> but I managed. Yeah. Well, that makes that makes the book because talking about it is one thing. Seeing the actual work, and I was quite surprised at some of the artwork. It's beautiful. And and seeing Mm. the children actually painting and doing all the different kinds of things that you talk about in the book, I think makes the book come alive for anyone who is a reader. What made you decide to share all of these wonderful ideas with the world and write the book? Um. I, by the time I went to Rissenvale, uh, I knew it was in the, um, going to be the last few years of my career. So I had a chat with the, the principal and I said, look, can I, with your permission, photograph what I'm going to do with the children over the next five years? And he thought it was a great idea. And we got the permission from the parents and... Off we went. <clears throat> but it took, it, it took a while because I had to persuade the children to come with me. They thought when I arrived at Rissenvale, oh, here's another one. Exactly. And uh, so I had to find my way through. And I had to win them over and earn their respect. And I said... I think I can make you want to come to school, but I need your help. So I told them about my school days, and they couldn't believe it. And I said, well, your school seems to be an awful lot better than mine. Let's do something about ours then and make it even better. So they were really excited about the prospect because then they wondered, well, what are we going to do? What's different? What are we going to do? And I said, we're going to do a lot of things together. We're going to start with art. We're going to start with painting abstracts. These are paintings you can do where no one makes mistakes. So there's no fear of failure. So we did it together. I showed them how, a small group at a time, and then one group started influencing another group, and it spread right through the classroom environment. Now, how did you decide to start with art? Do you have a background in art? um, I had, over my career, built up a number of explorations that I could use with primary schools. But I had to tailor-made them for these particular children. And I thought, 
they're so frightened of failure. I've got to do something that's going to make them feel good. Make them feel they can do something. Get them to where they want to try. And we tried using these abstracts, which are described in uh, the first part of the book. This is what got me through. Got them through and the way we went developing ideas where we explored colour and then got into trees and landscapes. Um, It was an amazing journey. But I had to do something easy with them at first so they could enjoy success. Success was not a common commodity at Risenbrough. Their self-esteem was appallingly low. Art was a wonderful way to raise that self-esteem, to make them feel that they really mattered. How did their parents react? Um, With some enthusiasm. It was great when they were encouraged to visit the classroom. They were amazed to see the effort that was made to display their children's work, not only in the classroom, but in, in adjoining rooms, down the corridor, and into the community. Uh, We had a little plan where the children could frame their paintings and put them in various places in the community, like the hairdressers or the supermarket or the the neighbourhood centre or the doctors. So we were reaching out. and, And it got to the stage where the parents were wanting me to be a part of their lives. So I started taking workshops for parents, teachers, and other children, using my children as tutors after school. So we had the assembly hall, and we would have a a two-hour session of doing wonderful things where you had parents, teachers, children, and parents working, learning, and enjoying the expression of artistic ideas. And this just, I can hear it in your voice, this just grows, doesn't it? It, It's like that proverbial snowball that you start at the top of the hill and you give it a little Mm. push. And as it goes down, it gathers momentum. Yeah, that's right. Now, from art... Part of the flow, Suzanne, is part of the flow. Perfect. That's why it's called flow. Yes. So what happens after the art? What do you segue into? Um, And does art stay a part of everything? Well, it does, because if you look at the book, you will find that I spent some time talking about imagery. We started looking at idioms and illustrating the, the interesting association of ideas. And then we went into other aspects of imagery, and then I got them to... Uh, consider painting their feelings. Oh. And then it moved from feelings to concern. And I then got myself into some degree of strife. They were using imagery in their paintings, and it was amazing me 
But when we got down to concerns, I was expecting the children of the Rissenbile to be talking about global concerns like peace or the environment. But I had it wrong. The children of Rissenbile, their world was their immediate community. And their concerns were drug abuse, alcohol, suicide. And I got myself in a situation where I had to do something about it, Suzanne. Oh, my goodness. You got yourself more than you expected to get, didn't you? Yes. And uh, this is what happens when you uh, build up trust with children they come and speak to you mm-hmm. as a, a friend or a family member <clears throat> or a kindly uncle. I've even been called mum and dad in the classroom. Oh, gosh. Oh. <laughs> wow. That's really developing <clears throat> trust. And this, you know, David, you developed trust in a place that I suspect trust had never been a part of education before. You, I, I had that feeling, yes, definitely. But now, you've also got dysfunctional families as well. Right. And uh, it's very difficult. So art, to me, also provided the children with a, a, a therapeutic feeling of safety, but also vulnerable they were vulnerable as well. But art soothed the savage soul. Because it was okay. And because nobody said, oh, that's a bad picture. No, that's right. It was a wow factor. Where everyone was excited about it. And I think one of the key things, Suzanne, was I sat alongside them. I agree. If I asked them to do a painting... They would see me having a go too. I couldn't agree more. And, and <clears throat> it brought us closer together. So there was a mutual understanding. Let me read you this passage, and it illustrates this really quite nicely. Please. Mr. E often liked to paint alongside the children. It helped him to feel part of the learning group as we were all learning together. Brent saw his teacher practicing some of trees in the middle middle ground of his landscape painting. And in the book, there's a photo of me doing just that. I think you will be better off testing out a few fir trees, suggested Brent. (laughs) You're quite right, Brent. I haven't quite worked out how to paint fir trees, replied his teacher. Come with me, Mr. E, I'll show you how, beckoned Brent. The teacher followed and sat beside him at his workplace. You see, Mr. E, they are a sort of triangle shape and some of the branches go sideways. They even bend down towards the ground in some places. You only need to paint a few trunks and branches as you can't see the rest. The leaves, well, I just dabbed them on with a small bristle brush, just like what you told us before. He was enthusiastic with his instructions and advice. He had worked that out for himself. 
and was justly proud of his discoveries. His confidence and self-satisfaction glowed within his smiles as he continued with his painting. His teacher shared his pleasure. The teacher had become the pupil. The pupil had become the teacher. Teachers and pupils learning together. That was the heartbeat of our learning environment. It was beating, 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 beating. Oh, David, you've just put a huge smile on my face. I can just (laughs) see that happening in the classroom. I taught at one point in my career as a teacher, I taught basics as well, and I tried to find different ways to, now these are are kids that were 17, 18 years old. So they had, in my mind, they looked away from the educational system for what seemed like a moment to them. And when they turned back around, they'd missed so much, they could never quite catch up and never feel like they fitted in. So they became problems. And I looked for ways, just like you did, to try to pull those kids back into the educational system to give them ways that they could have success. I love that passage that you read. I think that's a perfect choice. I'll try to curb my enthusiasm here for a moment because, (laughs) uh, yeah, I know. (laughs) You've gotten me so excited. When you were writing the book, and now that it's complete, yes. who who do you think should use this book? Who do you think would pick it up and benefit from it and maybe change the way that they're approaching the educational system? Well, obviously, teachers come to mind. Right. But I was also thinking of uh, teachers of teachers in training institutions. I was thinking of universities. But I'm also thinking of anyone else who enjoys working alongside children. It could be in childcare centres. It could be in a family home environment. I see all of those relevant places where the book could be used. I couldn't agree with you more. And I was thinking exactly along the same lines you were. Why not use this? I mean, a family, if a, if parents bought the book, started to read the book, and perhaps they have multi-generational children, gee, why not bring them all together and let them do some of these ideas? Let them do some of these things. Let this creativity yes. sort of do exactly what it did for you. Start them with art. Start them with something that they can feel successful and it will build their self-esteem and just spill over into all areas of their lives, I think. You're quite right. You're quite right. Um, and I, I did just that because at the same time I would be doing work with art. I would be doing some explorations in mathematics. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I did a lot of um, exploring in the field of three dimensions. Or of we course. did 
sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. That's all right. I we, get that um, too. Had, had a, we had a lot of fun making machines out of simple materials, like uh, make a, uh, a racing car balloon-powered out of a shoebox. Or can you design a way so we can drop a raw egg from the school roof without <laughs> it breaking on the asphalt ground floor? Um, so we did those sorts of things as well. But it, all of it was hands-on, practical exploration that made them feel that learning was fun. Well, you brought we it to all... life. You brought it yeah. to life. I mean, all of a sudden, yeah. I'm in school, and I'm getting to drop an egg off a of roof of the school? <laughs> <laughs> What's that about? I mean, you made them live. You made the whole thing fun. Yeah, it was. And uh, that's the, uh, the fourth book, I think, I, I, I did wrote about that kind of work. Um, there's a phrase that always came to my mind. Um, very, it was used quite a lot in the 1970s, which was a very uh, important decade of my career. It was full of life and energy. Things were happening. And the popular saying was Confucius's little saying, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. Perfect. And I think that little piece of wisdom from Confucius has lived with me right through my career. I think it's perfect. And I think we have talked about the book. Surely the listener has heard both of our levels of enthusiasm for the ideas in the book because it's just it's terrific did you sometimes going through an experience is one thing but when you sit down and you write about the experience it's something else sometimes yes. when you're writing about the experience you learn some things about yourself or some things come to the surface that you didn't anticipate and there are surprises there did any of that happen for you while you were writing the book? Um, some, yeah, yes, it certainly did. Um, I collected an awful lot of samples of children's work, plus my photos, plus all my written notes. And then I had to make a selection from those to see if I could make it into a book. And when I started writing, it was amazing how I was taken back to my classroom of 20 years ago. There I was. It was almost living through it again. And my memory was amazing. I could remember conversations that I had with the children. I just needed a photo or two and a couple of well-written notes and I was able to bring that experience back to life in the form of a book. I found that quite amazing. 
because I didn't think it would have been possible for someone to do that after such a long period of time. I love that. I'm sure that our listeners are saying to themselves, okay, where can we find this book? Let me tell you, let me give you the title, let me do some spelling for you. Go to Amazon, and if you've never done that before, simply put the word Amazon. You can put www in front of it if you want to, but you almost don't need to. Click on that, and the Amazon website will come up. There's a long sort of a a beige box that's the place that you will enter the the title of the book. There's also a little drop-down menu that you can choose from. Amazon has so very many categories. Make sure that you drop that drop-down menu down and choose books. Then in the, the search box, write the words, here's the title to the book, A Flowing F-L-O-W-I-N-G through T-H-R-O-U-G-H colon. Now the next part is very long. I think if you wrote just a flowing through, you would be able to find it. But here's the rest of the title. A series of artistic explorations that flow from simple starting points, pass by milestones, and finish with polished achievements by David D A V I D Esling E S L I N G when you click on that the book will come right up now the cover David let's talk about the cover a little because you've done something very interesting on the cover of the book yeah tell me about that um I wanted <clears throat> I wanted to use photographs of the book on the front cover, and I had a chat with um, a graphic artist I knew, and I said, "I wonder if you could choose some photos that are in the book that represent the kind of flow that I'm talking about," and he produced a very simple design on with a blue background of a gentle flow of ideas that is that the photos suggest um i'm very pleased with the the um title page and um, you will find that the sequels have a similar design the second book would be in the primary colour, yellow. The mathematics book was in the prime, will be in the primary colour, red. And the book about um, exploring the making of machines that work with simple materials will be in the secondary colour, green but all with a very similar design of a gentle flow and photos from each book. I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a perfect. It's exactly when you look at the front of the book, it says exactly 
what the book is. Now, the, the listeners need to understand that they'll see that cover, and as they look at the representation of the cover, if they'll look in the upper right-hand corner, they'll see the words, look inside. Put your cursor on the words, look inside, and just give it a gentle click. When you do that, the book will open, and there's a wonderful excerpt about the book. You can read right from the book. You can also see a table of contents and there's a wonderful introduction and a preface that also gives you additional information. Now this is on Amazon and I know David that some of our listeners prefer to get their books from other places. They don't like to buy things from the largest bookseller in the universe I suppose. So are there some other places that the book is easily available to the listener? Well, I know in Tasmania it's available from your favourite bookshop, uh, even if you have to order it through Bell Bar. Um, I've been made aware <clears throat> in the communications I've received that you can get it from Barnes and Noble. But other than that, I'm just a, a writer of educational books and uh, I'm not really a bookseller. <laughs> I get it. I would imagine that if the listeners simply put your name in Google and clicked on it, that it would come up with all sorts of sources that they could access. And it's D-A-V-I-D-E-S-L-I-N-G. Now, I know you don't currently have a website, but... I think that there may be one in the works that's under construction for the future. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I'm thinking of it as I um, release each book in turn, which may be a slow process because um, um, the cost of preparing each book is quite immense for a pensioner. But I'm doing the best I can. Well, the, the, what you have done is so amazingly complete. Are you doing any of the other social media platforms? Are you doing a Facebook page by any chance? I have, <clears throat> I have started uh, uh, using Facebook. Um, but I ran into trouble almost immediately. Uh, someone borrowed a friend's name and tried to scam me. <sighs> Gee, I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. Well, they'll, they'll, um, they'll have to wait and I, they'll have to look for you on social media, right? Yeah, I, I am I, I am contactable on Facebook, but um, and I don't mind making friends with anyone who uh, wants to share the pleasure of my book. How would they find you on Facebook, David? Just your name? Uh, I... Yeah, David Esling. Uh, I think I have a number, 109975. Great. Um, but that's that all. I don't often use it myself now, but I will try and get into the habit of it. I, I look at it once a day and just check through it, and then I'm on to something else. I can't spend all day mucking around <laughs> with social media, I'm afraid. I understand completely. I understand completely. And our listeners should be looking for the other four books. They could probably access the Balboa Press 
website and find out more information as those are released. And hopefully you and I will talk about the other books as you get those released. That's exciting. Well, it'll be lovely to talk to you again, Suzanne. Well, you know that I have one last question for you, David. When our listeners become readers, as I'm certain they will, this book is just too wonderful not to not to own a copy of. They'll sit down, and this is not a book that they'll read like a romance or a, a spy novel. This is a book that they'll sit down, and they'll begin to read, and they'll think about part of it, and then they'll go back and they'll read some more, and they'll think about part of it, and they'll put some things into action, and they'll keep reading. Eventually, they will come to that last page. They'll read that last page. They'll close the back cover, either electronically or physically. And I'd like to ask you what you would like that reader, when they finish the book, to take away with them. Wow, that was amazing. Yes, inspirational, influential. I'm going to try that. I love it. How could you not be all of those things when you finish this book? It's just been inspirational to talk to you. You you are amazing. The things that you've done with children, the ideas that you have are just so forward thinking and I admire you so much. Thank you so much for being my guest today on Books on Air. It's been an absolute pleasure for me. A pleasure for me too. Thank you, Susan. Now remember, you can find David's book, A Flowing Through a series of artistic explorations that flow from simple starting points, pass by milestones, and finished with polished achievements on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You've been listening to the Books on Air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net. You can also hear this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Suzanne Harris, and I so hope that you'll join me for my next Books on Air podcast, because remember, you never know who's going to be here, and you never know what we're going to talk about. Thank you so very much for listening. <laughs>